you like our owl? How many questions does it usually take to spot? I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30, cross-referenced. Fiery the angels fell. Deep thunder rolled around their shores, burning with the fires of a hawk. Welcome to Shoal of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick and Dan. How you guys doing? Good. Good? Good. Good. <laughs> I'm doing great. I gotta say, I'm watching Dan drink his milk seductively in the background. His it's milk? Here, uh, trying it's a to... white Russian. It's a, it's, is it actually Ooh. white Russian? It's breast milk. What is that, like eggnog and... I don't know. No, it's vodka, it. coffee liqueur, and cream. Most people use oh. Kahlua, but I ha- somebody gifted me a bottle of like Italian espresso liqueur, and it's it's not as sweet, so it actually makes a really good white Russian. I never have a cocktail. I get I get a sugar rush from it. Which I, would I don't love want when I'm white, drinking. I don't want to get hyper when Russian. I'm drinking. You know, I want to like I want to lay down. I want to fall asleep and spill alcohol on myself. That's like the experience. I, I don't want to be all like hyped up. You know. <laughs> You guys are just, you guys are just rookies. You need to start putting more serious time into drinking, and you'll be fine. That's true. We just gotta get get more serious about it. Um, no, I'm, I'm doing good. I gotta out. say, you know what I'm realizing in preparation for this episode, fellas, is that we do have these amazing books, including one that's coming out in a matter of days. Right, the storyboards book. When by the time mm-hmm. this airs, it should be out, I believe. Um, <clears throat> but the other books that we have, the Art and Soul of Blade Runner and the Art book, are amazing. And they're fucking gigantic, and it's becoming really difficult to have them out when we're doing episodes because <laughs> there's no room left in my entire office here. Uh, so if you hear a crashing noise, it's my standing desk being knocked over by the three-foot book that I have perched on it right now. So I apologize in advance for that. But I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? Good. I'm halfway to being fully vaccinated, so I guess I'm halfway vaccinated. That's half <laughs> And you are about to get your first shot, right, Patrick? Tuesday, yeah, all Tuesday. night I was nice. waiting in line and then got up early and did it. And uh, and my sister actually is the one who got me the appointment because we were both just like on the phone all morning trying to get it done. And she finally got through and she was like, "Hey, my brother also needs a shot." And they're like, "Okay, fine." And that was it. And she got the same day that she made the appointment. They were like, "Why don't you just come in?" And she got her first dose. And uh, wow. mine is just in a couple of days from now, so I'm feeling like the light at the end of the tunnel is very close and uh and I I'm so excited to see you guys. I got to say that. I really can't wait to hang out. I, I know it's going to happen this year. It really does feel I'll like buy my ticket happen. next week. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to meet Henry before he like graduates from high school. Yeah, right. He's going to have that mustache by the time you see him, right? <laughs> oh man. Awesome. I, I'm going I to the movies w- tomorrow. Yeah, you are. You're going to catch up first time in show, 8 months. Right? No, oh. longer than 8 months. No, I'm actually going to an 8.35 p.m. show. Everything's sold out here. Everything. That was the only thing I could get. 
to be fair, there's only 10 seats available in the movie theater, so it's not, true. It's Although, not like Endgame. Tuesday or Monday, we oh, we go to 50% capacity as opposed to 25. Like, that's how good wow. LA County is doing right now. So, yeah, you guys exciting. don't have the variants that we have over here on the East Coast. We're no, we do. Slammed by variants right now. We do, but not like you guys. Yeah. I think Europe's worse too. In Italy, they're really concerned about the different variants. Yeah. It's okay. We're going to get there. I, I hope you have a great time. I, I I got to watch Godzilla vs. Kong last night. We had I was just going to ask. Such a fun time. It was the culmination of a week-long festival, as you guys know, in our household, where we watched <laughs> a lot of the classic, the Showa and the Heisei era films and things. And we got all the action figures out last night, and we got sushi, including a Godzilla roll, a spicy tuna roll, um, and a spider roll and some other ones. And we just had this like amazing time, You know, laughed, cheered, almost cried. Jude actually cried. Oh, really? Film. Yeah. Uh, after you see it, I'll let you guess what, what did it. Um, it was a really good experience. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's a lot of fun. It, it's not for me as good as King of the Monsters, but many other people disagree with that. And I think that it's a win-win. And like I was mentioning earlier today, uh, it feels almost like a social service to me at this point to have access to entertainment like this, because it is two hours of your life where you are just in awe and seeing spectacle and laughing at how ridiculous things are and having a genuinely good escapist time. And for, you know, a people who have been locked in boxes for a year, you know, to have just two hours to be seeing crazy shit going down and on a big screen, hopefully for many people who are able to get out to movie theaters right now, it's a, it feels like a social service. It feels like a human good, you know, and it celebrates, I think, why we go to the movies in the first place, right? Which is, it's a journey into an imaginary world. It's a journey into another story. It's a chance to walk in somebody else's shoes and to see things outside the walls that we live in. And a lot of us need to see things like that right now. And uh, Godzilla vs. Kong is a great opportunity to go do that. So check it out. That is a recommendation, ladies and gentlemen. That's a formal <laughs> formal recommendation. <laughs> sounds well, sounds accurate, too. Like, it sounds like you guys just had a blast, which is really cool. Yeah, There's that's where time. I'm going. Yeah. Like, I'm not going for anything like good. I mean, you know, relatively. It is good. It's, it's yeah. well-made entertainment. Yeah. You know? want to have fun. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, I got to say, I, I had a misspeak when you asked me who directed it on, it might've been a frame rate. It might've been an episode of either of our shows. I truly don't know, but my, <laughs> Michael Doherty <laughs> did not direct this. He was, he has a story credit. He's the guy that did King of the Monsters. This was directed by Adam Wingard, who in the past has done a lot of smaller, like indie pictures, indie horror stuff. And I gotta say, he did a really good job with it, you know, with a story that was that that would have been easy to make a shitty movie out of it, and it is not a shitty movie. It's a ridiculous movie, but it's not a shitty one, you know. Um, it's fun. All the best memories are hers. your daughter well tonight we are here to discuss a character from blade runner 2049 which is a part of our ongoing series um and this character is the staline dr anna staline to give her full name and again it's a character we've been talking about here and there but we've never really fully covered and we felt like it was time to talk about her in depth who she is what she represents uh themes 
because uh, there's a lot about her that coincides with other existing characters in the original film. Um, so that's what we're here to do. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening to us. To begin this conversation, um, when you're first introduced to her, you don't you meet her and you're like, okay, there's the memory maker. Interesting. She seems very soulful. Not that I didn't give her second thought, but there's so much else going on in the film and our all eyes are on Kay. You're not really thinking of her. She's just kind of this bit player, um, barely a bit player in this, this, this larger story. So I just didn't like, I didn't really give her much thought, even though I thought how her introduction was amazing. When you see her the first, I mean, cause when you first are brought into where she works, it's she's in that virtual forest and it's the first time we're seeing that kind of greenery in this film, which is also very different for the Blade Runner universe. We've never seen anything like this before. And we're seeing this bug and all of a sudden the bug starts changing shapes, like being adjusted. And then you see her adjusting it and it, you know, uh, the camera pans back and pans back and we see more and we see more. And she's in this amazing virtual forest and, uh, she realizes that she has a visitor and Kay is there. Uh, and I thought, you know, it's interesting to see her again. Um, and there are some parallels to her and JF Sebastian. Um, but I didn't, again, I didn't really give her much thought. I can see the JF parallels, but there's also a Tyrell parallel, not in the sense that she's God or a creator of some sort, but <clears throat> I guess that depends on what we know about Tyrell and the memories he's implanted into Rachel. Ostensibly, that's from his niece, and then he's had them implanted into Rachel, which we find out later is the Nexus 7. So, yeah, I guess Tyrell isn't the person doing that. He would have someone working for him doing that. But nonetheless, Staline is the parallel in 2049 of the person who is... Now that memory implants are a normal thing and no longer an experiment, you know, she's the expert. She's the person or she's one of the people who does that. Um, almost like she's a parallel to someone like Chu, right, uh, who does eyes, except she's doing something a little more ethereal. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting to see that sort of uh, personified in the second film. I also think something <clears throat> going back for a moment um, to what Jamie was saying about the first time we see her. Something that is, it's easy to forget how shocking this was the first time through, but there are so many things that feel on the face of them anachronistic to the world of Blade Runner in that first sequence, right? Starting with the fact that it starts with nature, right? It starts with the insect and it's green and it's lush and it's very bright. And in a movie theater where, you know, our eyes have been trained to look at dark images for so long, you know, by this point, like halfway through the movie to be confronted with this extreme shift tonally is kind of shocking, right? Um, and I think in a lot of ways, it's like this, that narrative decision, there's many layers to it, but the narrative decision to like show her brightly lit in this environment that she's creating that feels very quote unquote out of place is a real audacious thing for Villeneuve and his team to do. Right. Because that is, that is him saying like, you are either by this point in the movie on board with my version of Blade Runner. Like you're either going to take a leap into this new world with me. Or you're just not. But like at this point, you can leave the theater if you're if you're upset that it's not a, a visual duplicate of the first film, right? Because it's so tonally different and it's so bright and it's so far removed. Um, and I think that 
you know, there's narrative reasons for that. One of which is that, and, you know, we're going to get into some more aspects of her character in a bit, but she represents a complete shift, right? Like she is not a Nexus model, but she was born of one, right? She is not who we think she is when we see her. She's this, this complete rare bird. And we're given a visual idea of that because of the way that she's introduced, which is completely different to anything else we have ever seen in a Blade Runner film before. Um, and of course, then, you know, the curtains get pulled back and we see the environment that she's actually in. But even that, it's important to note, is still extremely different, right? The whole memory egg environment that she's in in her lab is totally, in some ways, anachronistic, again, to the world of Blade Runner, which is a world of sharp angles and darkness and bright lights, as far as we know going into this film, right? Um, and here she is in this sterile, almost, you know, Nordic-looking, almost like a Danish modernist environment, again, suffused with light, wearing an, an entirely white outfit, and walking around with this machine that, as they say in the Art and Soul of Blade Runner, was based on the Voight Kampf. It was supposed to feel reminiscent of it. It's got that really tactile, old-world camera-esque feel, right? It looks almost like parts of a DSLR camera. Um, and it's just, it's just all of these things that feel very out of place in some ways when we first see them. And there's a reason for it. We're getting cued into what she represents and cued into the fact that this film isn't what we're assuming it is. Even though emotionally by that point we are with Kay and we are like seeing this with him. This is Villeneuve saying, you might be want to, you might want to see this with different eyes because there's more going on than it seems, you know? Dr. Anastaline. A visitor. Is that okay? Yes. And uh, Patrick, you mentioned something earlier, uh, which takes place in our first introduction to her, where she's she exits out she exits out of the the forest scene, and then she talks to Kay, and then she's like, "I need to do some work." But I can still, I can work, but I can, I'll still talk to you, whatever she says. So then she she kneels down and she creates, or she starts working on this beautiful memory of a birthday party. And she's talking about what that means, how important memories are to us, um, why it's important to place those in replicants. But you, you mentioned, and I would like you to talk about that a little bit more, why that scene is so powerful for you. Well, I, I think one of the reasons that it's powerful is the birthday party in particular, right? Which represents, again, it's like subliminal going on because her birth is very significant, but we don't really know that yet. But from a visual standpoint, it looks like every child's birthday party we remember being a part of as kids, right? It's It doesn't look like it's this fantastical sci-fi universe. It doesn't look like, it doesn't, there's no visual indicator that it's anything other than your friend's eighth birthday party when you were a kid playing with Legos in the background, right? It's a really homey, real world our universe moment that she's creating, which I think is significant. But um, it, to me, it felt like, like, what is this movie? Like there, this is, this does not feel at all like the Blade Runner that I know, but I, I love what it is. And I'm going to be open to seeing what the Blade Runner I can know next looks like, you know, but yeah, yeah, I was mentioning this earlier because I was saying how the first time we see this movie, it's, it's hard to remember how shocking some things were, right? Like, we've talked about Rachel 2.0 so many times now that there was nothing shocking about it, at least in the abstract. When we watch the movie, it's powerful again. But when we talk about it, like, you know, I don't get choked up talking about her anymore. You know, we get it, right? 
um, when we go back to other pivotal moments in the film that the, you know, having seen it now dozens of times, like they, they kind of lose their impact a little bit, but I'm trying to put myself back in the headspace because we're so overdue for this Delene episode. I'm trying to put myself back in the headspace of the first time I saw her in this movie and what that was like. And I was so struck by how it felt like I had just stepped into another movie for a second. And I was so disoriented by that, right? Disoriented because narratively speaking, it's just this huge disruption with this, with this, you know, bright lights and everything that we just talked about, but also with this like incredible sense of warmth and like tenderness with this birthday party that she's creating. Remember, she says she loves birthday parties. She's, this is like her favorite thing to do. And she's just like lovingly playing with the settings on it. And it's this very intimate moment that it's easy to forget that this is the same universe with spinners and the LAPD beating people and, you know, racism and shit. Like it doesn't feel like it exists because we're in this little tiny habitat and I, it's it's important to put ourselves back in that headspace, I think, when we try to approach her, because there was a time when we didn't know what she actually was. And we were seeing this movie, and she was just this memory engineer that was contracted by Wallace, right? She was just a link in a chain. But we didn't know that she was the chain the whole time, right? Yeah, I, I do remember a similar feeling about being enthralled with the visuals of the scene, but also constant, or at least several times turning around and being like, what the hell is going on and where am I right now? I mean, the forest scene is specifically designed to elicit that feeling, right? It's, it might even have a name in film, but it's almost like a dream sequence where you're like, bam, totally different environment. And you're like, green forest. Like, where are we? Like that's, this is in LA. And then you see her and then you see what she's doing and it slowly starts to pull you back until Kay walks in, the forest disappears, and then you're like, oh, now I get it. But you live in those moments for a while, 30, 60 seconds, whatever it is, where you have just no idea where you're at. Um, in, in the same way a dream is like, and of course, dreams and memories share a lot of similarities. Um, so yeah, I remember that feeling. By the time she's doing the birthday cake, of course, you have more set and setting and con and uh, context so you know where you're at and you can kind of see what she's doing but you're also starting to kind of think back at least the next few times i saw the film where you're like oh she's creating memories oh someone created memories in the first film i wonder what they were like and it's like the threads start to connect between the two films um even though like you said patrick it's a very different feeling um and i while you were talking, I was kind of writing down some of her quotes from the film and thinking about the scene in more detail. And I left myself kind of fresh for the episode because I hadn't thought about her in a long time and I hadn't thought about this scene in a long time. And usually when I do that, new things come to me, which just happened. So it's interesting. And for context, I'm not coming from a place where I'm nitpicking the scene or what she's doing. I'm just thinking out loud of the things that the details made me think about now that I'm reliving the scene in my head. And I didn't rewatch it um, recently. So this is just my memory of the scene, but you were talking Jamie about her manipulating the beetle and, you know, she's changing the head size and changing the body size. And when you think about it, it's like, wait, why is she doing that? Like, this is a forest. How many beetles are in that forest? She can't possibly be manipulating every leaf and every color and every insect and everything in that scene. Some of this has to be software. Some of it has to be generated automatically or she would be here for 10 years just designing that one memory, right? The birthday cake scene, separate. That's a little more simple. And so that made me think, oh, 
I was playing devil's advocate with myself and I was like, oh, well, that beetle must be something specific. It must be something she remembers from her childhood. That's why she's trying to get it right. Otherwise, why would it matter? If she's just generating a beetle, why would like the exact width of his body even matter to some replicant that it's getting implanted into that she's doing for a contract, right? That doesn't make any sense. So as I'm thinking more about it, I think it's possible that that was actually another one of her childhood memories maybe that she's recreating. Um, And because there's a little bit of contradiction to what she says and what she's doing, like her very eloquent and i love this is one of my favorite quotes in the film when she says they all think it's more about detail but that's not how memory works we recall with our feelings anything real should be a mess and that makes sense because we can relate to that on a level of feeling when you try and recall a dream it's always messy you don't know how you got there you don't know exactly you remember interacting with people but you don't remember their faces like it's really hard to really frame all the details of a dream and memory can be the same way although our brain does something where it fills in the gaps so you can spend your whole life remembering something and that memory will change but you can usually describe it pretty accurately to people at least you think you're being accurate but again that changes over time so what's interesting about this is that what she's doing in the scenes is the complete opposite of a mess she's being very very like attention to detail and is specifically manipulating that memory to create a very specific image um, again, the beetle forest scene is about a specific look. The birthday party scene, I think, correlates a lot more to that line where it's like about a feeling. Like Patrick said, it's kind of a generic, it's beautiful, but it's like a hallmark scene where it's like, oh yeah, this this is like a commercial for a kid's birthday party. Everybody's happy. It's like there's, I forget how diverse the kids are, but I feel like there's like each race is represented. It's like a UNICEF birthday party almost, you know, and like, um, that makes sense for what she's doing, but it certainly doesn't look like a mess. So it, 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 there's a lot of interesting little details to how they put that that together. And, and I'm curious as to, you know, where it went from original storyboard and script to how they ended up filming it. It's a very cool scene. Let me just throw something quick in there. Then I want to give it to Jamie because he's been silent for a little bit. But just about the, about that particular little sequence of the birthday party, it's important to remember what's around it. Do you remember what's around the birthday party, Dan? Uh, there's a table, there's a cake, there's a bunch of kids. The what's, rest of it's... what's past that table? I don't remember seeing anything. It felt Nothing. Dark. It's all dark. It's dark, right? It's right? black. And I think that gets at something important with memory, too, that I really hope we can dig into tonight a little bit, which goes back to one of the first shows that you wrote in about, Dan, <laughs> 75 years ago, right? <laughs> about, about Sapper's Tree and about memory and how it functions mm-hmm. in Blade Runner, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I just want to bookmark that tonight because memory and Blade Runner are very, very, very intertwined. And memory as a gateway to empathy is very, very intertwined, according to Hampton Fancher. And that was something he was going for with this with this treatment of this film that he you know, co-wrote. Um, but about that scene with the birthday party, right? The actual table is completely vivid, right? But everything else is just sort of swimming in darkness. And I think when I remember things, like when I think back to pivotal moments in my life, there are certain things that I know are accurate, right? There's this tiny handful of things in a scene that I just... I, 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 I can play it like a film, but things past that, like out of the periphery, I kind of lose that, right? Because I'm not thinking about that. I'm not focusing on it. Whereas she is creating the scene over and over and over and over again and getting closer to the center of it, right? And everything else isn't really important to her, but that birthday party. 
And I think that what you said before, Dan, is a great point that I also want to bookmark for us to come back to about the about the um, beetle and how she's trying to get it perfect and how, you know, like, sure, the leaves might be algorithmically generated. I, I kind of I assume that a lot of that is just sort of algorithms that populate scenes with generic details. Right. But that the things that, that she's paying attention to are unique to her. Right. The things that she's seeing within that scene are unique. For example, the three of us have hung out a couple of times. Right. And we've seen the same thing from three basically identical angles, right? Like that night where we were in downtown LA. We walked through the uh, second street tunnel. Right. Walking through the second street tunnel. That's, that's a great example of it. Right. So like, to me, that's extremely vivid. I I feel like I know exactly what it looks like. And I, both of your heads, I'm sure you have an exact idea of what you saw as well. But if we could somehow get them out of our heads and put them onto a, you know, some sort of a projector reel, they would probably look a little different. And that's where the important subjective element of memory comes in. And I think that Staline is a great gateway into how that functions and how memory is something we sometimes choose. You know, memory is something that it's about what we pay attention to and what makes it ours that's important. And for Staline, that birthday party is what she's paying attention to. Anyway, Jamie, go ahead. No, I, you guys hit on a lot of interesting points. Uh, one thing I was thinking about was when I first saw a trailer for uh, 2049 and you see a clip of the door opening, which looked like inside the, the forest. And, I, you know, it's probably a five second thing. And I'm like, whoa, where is that? Like, that's my first. And I wasn't like, obviously, aesthetically, it was very different from anything we'd seen in a Blade Runner film before. But it's I was probably also like, like two seconds remembering that trailer, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or or less, maybe like 1.5 yeah. seconds. Super Like fast. A several frames. Yeah. And I remember thinking it it didn't, it excited me because it was a new place. Um, I'm someone who... I view Blade Runner, to me, Blade Runner is, I think all of us are probably varying shades of this, but Blade Runner isn't just an aesthetic. Blade Runner is a philosophy. Blade Runner is a mood. Blade Runner, it's an, anecdotally, it is informed by its its art direction and the the choices that they make. But to me, those are secondary. The world and the discussions and the ideas that are presented, that to me is why I love these movies. So, I can see new things and be completely fine with them. Um, Cause I don't, I don't think for me, Blade Runner isn't on the roof during in the rain with a geisha on a screen saying words like that's not, that's a part of it, but that's not what Blade Runner is also because it's been so adopted by so many other things. Anyways, to go back into Staline's world uh so when i first saw that i was really excited to go into that whatever it was and then of course you see the movie the door opens and you realize oh it's not real it's all projection it's or however whatever that technology is doing um it, it was very very fascinating but i want to touch upon um this the birthday scene and what's interesting is that scene has a lot of attention brought to it the kids the way the cake is spinning, the, the candles, the way the candles are lit, it goes forward and backwards and forwards and backwards. And then later on, you see Tyrell talk about, you say, he says, happy birthday to the birth and birthdays are a big, huge thing in this movie. What does Kay see at the base of the tree? A birthday, a death day. So birth is a bigger deal in this movie than it, it, it is ever in the original. They don't really talk about birth. There was just, there's an issue, there's replicants, we got to deal with them. This is, I mean, even Kay has that discussion, not only with Joshi, but also with Joy, about being born 
um, being pushed into the world, loved. Much of who Staline is, is that she was born, pushed into the world, loved. That is her. I mean, I don't know. Of course, Rachel died in childbirth, so she ostensibly never met her mother. She doesn't really, she never knew her mother. Maybe she only knew Freza. I don't know how long Staline was with Freza. If Staline, if Anna Staline isn't even, well, is even her name. I mean, I don't know where she got Staline from. I don't know if it was adopted for her, if she was adopted out. Like, we don't know the details of how she ended up in that bubble, essentially. There's so much going on with who she is. Like, one thing as we were talking about is I thought about the Bible again, and when Herod is is after the baby, when Christ was a baby. They want him dead or they want him found. And it reminds me of what Wallace was doing. Wallace was after Staline. They were after the child because this child is dangerous. Um, and then we meet her not knowing that she is who she is. She's this effervescent, ethereal creature, just full of kindness, has none of the that energy that you see when we first are introduced to Rachel, and they're introduced in the same way. They're walking from shadow to light. But Rachel's steely and, like, suspicious. Staline is the opposite of that. She has a smile on her face. Her Almost like her arms are open, like, hello, I don't see visitors anymore. How wonderful. She's the antithesis of both her parents, really, because Deckard is shut down and kind of grumpy and gruffy and... And Rachel is distant and lost in who she might be or who she was. And then you have this amazing child, grown woman, who is, even in that that globe that she lives in, I don't know where her, her living quarters are. I don't know where those tunnels lead to or those, I don't know where she goes. Um, we see her workspace. We don't see her home space. You see joy of life from her. Even though she's trapped, you see joy of life. There's a joy in her face. There's something in her persona that you don't see in anybody else in this film. Everyone else is sort of closed down. There's a job that we got to do. You know, Joshi's all, you know, she's the captain of the LAPD or whatever she is. And everyone's sort of lost in their own dystopia. Staline is very different from everyone else. You don't, it's a whole different world. You don't feel like you're in a dystopia anymore. You feel like you're in this very loving, warm environment. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, and she's so at peace and yet she's the only thing in that space. Although I guess she has the gateway to memory, right? So she can kind of go anywhere she wants, but you're right. There's something, it feels almost kind of Buddhist about her existence. She's sort of mm -hmm. almost like time is a circle to her and she's just sort of living her life in this space that's very pristine. And she's, you know, we see like a cot on the floor and some pillows and to me, you're right. We don't really know where she lives, quote unquote. But to me, she lives there. I, I think she lives there. I think that's everything to her. You know, I think going back to a, a moment, um, you were talking earlier about her parents and about, you know, how what happened to her after, after the orphanage. I guess it, it's probably worth going through what we know about her. And you guys can jump in and correct me if I'm screwing details up. But I, I think I, I think I get it. So, you know, she's born. <clears throat> Rachel dies. She's, uh, you know, Deckard scrambles her birth records right he says that she was that they were twins and that the girl twin died Fraser and the, the rest of her you know resistance uh replicants take her they care for her she winds up at the moracle more orphanage orphanage right where we see all these flashbacks with the horse and all these different things uh and then she's adopted and her adoptive parents leave 
Remember, they go off world and they leave her behind because of her, quote, compromised immune system when she was, I think, eight, right? So that, I think, is the last link in the sort of chain of custody of that character in a way. Like, I think she, I think she ends up in this isolation existence around the age of eight. Her parents go off world. We don't really know the story behind that. Her adoptive parents go off world. Um, we don't know if the immune sickness is real or not. I, I still think it's not. I think that that was a way of hiding of hiding her from Wallace. You know, of oh, making sure. See, that, I did. I yeah. didn't even buy the 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 story. Her parents are off world story either. I felt like all of that was a was a, a front for what mm-hmm. was really happening with her. I don't know. That's just I never yeah, bought any of it. It's possible she never even had adoptive parents. Yeah, I mean, we don't see them. We don't have any memories of them in the film. We don't hear anything else about them but an eight-year-old is going to remember that so but then again you know she's not a typical eight-year-old i mean she's you know born of a replicant like who, who knows how her memory functions but i i, I guess to, to me though the adoptive parents when i think of them were probably resistance members or something who then took her got her out of the orphanage system you know created this trail for her to be able to be a little bit less visible right and then left so that they couldn't be tracked down and she was, you know, given this diagnosis of this genetic condition and put in isolation after that. Um, but it's interesting because she really is a blank slate. When we see her, she's like as close to literally carte blanche as you get because she lives in a blank bubble, right? So we we see her and we kind of imprint all of these different ideas about who she is and what, what she represents based on how we're watching the movie, right? But she really is, uh, she's, yes, yeah, she can be a lot of different things and also perhaps nothing at the same time, you know? Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about what's true and what's not true about her past. Um, and what she's in on versus not like one assumes by the end of the movie that she has no idea who Deckard is, that he's introducing himself to her for the first time and that he was, you know, he ran off um, after Rachel died and that he wasn't around when she was eight, etc. But who knows if she grew up in the resistance and at some point was just told for whatever reason, she may not have been told that she's half replicant or whatever the case may be, but just that things were getting dangerous and that they needed to hide her. She may be in on that part of it. You know, who knows? Um, we just, we don't know what she actually knows and what she believes and what is part of her cover story and whatnot. It's left classically ambiguous for this uh, world, which is, again, good because it allows us to speculate on all of it. Um, I also found it interesting thinking back to the scene about how this is relatively new technology, although I I imagine it was around when 2049 was being filmed. But um, we talked about the Mandalorian and we're watching the behind the scenes stuff for that for a frame rate. And it just made me think back to the stagecraft system that ILM has that they refer to as the volume in the making of uh, Mandalorian and how Stellene's environment is you know, a more futuristic, more immersive version of that. But when you hear people talking about the volume and the way it works, 
and you see real shots of it, like behind the scenes, off screen shots of it. And you're like, wow, they're explaining to me how half of this is not real. Only some of the foreground stuff is a real prop. And I'm still having a hard time telling the delineation between the props and the screens. So it's getting there. Give that technology another 20 years and Staline's virtual 3D lab environment might be a real thing where you could be walking around manipulating things in real time. I just, as we were talking about it, I thought it was an interesting example of, once again, science fiction uh, predicting the future of technology and showing us something that will probably be alive to see later, which from a visual perspective is interesting. There's that same sense of unreality when you watch the behind the scenes, like the Disney Gallery specials on Mandalorian, when they change the scene in, inside the volume, it is truly like unnerving, right? It really, it looks like they just left the building and went somewhere else. And then they just flick a switch and they're all walking around the set and they're, they're, you know, they don't care because they're just kind of sort of cycling through backgrounds, getting ready for the next shot. But it looks like you're watching them freaking time travel. It's, it's absolutely absurd. So that's a really good point. It's, just, it's kind of a similar technological idea, Dan. You know, what's uh, also fairly fascinating about who Staline is, well, again, there's some J.F. Sebastian parallels here. And I know we talked about themes a while ago um, and about discussing themes where J.F. Sebastian has Galatian syndrome. She has, no, J.F. Sebastian has Methuselah syndrome. Right. And she has Galatian syndrome. And I've looked it up, like, I guess Galatian syndrome is supposed to be a, she's immunocompromised, right? A weakened immune system. Isn't that what she says? That's what she says, but I think the Galatian syndrome was the fake death cause of her twin in the yes. in the genetic system. I don't think she actually has Galatian Un- unrelated. syndrome. Yeah. yeah, which I feel like she knew it wasn't real. This is the line she gives. This is why. And what does her living in a bubble enable her to do? Survive. Because no one's going to breach that if they know that she's that sick. That's going to keep her safe from Wallace, um, which ironically enough she's working for the man who's after her doesn't know who she is and she's right under his nose right under his nose um the who i think staline is one of the more fascinating characters in the film because of all of these themes that she's hitting all of these who she represents and the uh, there's charts that you see where you see these circles and the circles are everywhere and then in the middle all the circles meet you know and they said you're here or something like that. I don't like know. A Venn what diagram, something, yeah, something like that. Where she is really that. She is really a Venn diagram, where she is. Uh, I mean, for one thing, you know, the elephant in the room or the replicant in the room is we don't know whether Deckard is a human or not. So we don't know what sh- fully she is. We know she's born of a re- replicant woman, but we don't know if her father is replicant or, or human. That's a big one. That's a real big one. Um, is Staline half human or is she all replicant? We don't know. Um, but also, would that mean if she is all replicant, that just means she's human still? Uh, I, we, we don't. There's a lot of unknowns with her. Um, and I mean, but she's also the first replicant to grow, um, to to grow up from a child to an adult. Um, but at the same time, I also had other questions like so. Could they have children replicants? Like in the comics, aren't there little kids who are replicants as well? I feel like we saw one or two. Uh, I don't know. Clone. I 
Do we see I a clone? I don't, is think that... she, I don't I think isn't she a clone? The little know, kid. Go back and look. Yeah, Cleo. I thought like there was one no, panel Cle- that, that that's I saw. The original Cleo. That's a, that's just a child. I'm not talking about Cleo. I'm talking about. I don't a, think uh, we see any children replicants. Okay. Well, we see, okay. We see a like a replicant wife, like a replicant duplicate wife. Right. Mm-hmm. Her and, mother. Right. Right. Yes. I, yeah. I, I feel like if we had seen a replicant child even in the comic, it would have been made a huge deal yeah, and there would be have been thing. a lot of talk about it and we would remember that's that. True. So but it's confusing I'm, because true. like Staline, like, she's also kind of hiding in plain sight, right? Like Cleo in the comics is a human child who is hiding with the replicants, right? So she's going undercover and the replicants are kind of gradually more and more aware that she's not, not a replicant, right? Um, but that's kind of like how she's, she's off-world amongst the replicants passing as a replicant. Um, and likewise... Staline is among is is in the wolf's den, right? She's at the heart of the wolf's den, but because I mean she's indispensable too. I don't I don't mean to cut off your point, Jamie. I'll get back no, to it's okay. Second, but but she's um she's made herself indispensable. So like she's the best at what she does at this enhancement memory programming, right? And so because of that, like nobody wants to you know mess up a bad thing, well, a good thing. Like you know you don't want to lose your best memory engineer, right? But also like you can't touch her or she, or she will die, or at least that's the narrative that everybody has bought into or seems to have bought into right so she's literally untouchable in that way from multiple angles right she's untouchable because you don't want to piss off your best engineer you want to treat her well right and she's untouchable because physically you you could kill her in doing that and because wallace is motivated above anything else by capitalism right he's like the paragon of of unfettered capitalism um or not paragon he's like the the you know ultimate prototype of that uh, Staline represents something that he would never want to mess up because she makes better replicants, right? Because her engineering prowess makes a better product. Yeah, it's kind of surprising, really, that we haven't done an episode on Staline standalone yet because from a certain perspective, she's sort of the fulcrum of this entire film or the center of the story of this entire film. I mean... I just jotted down some notes real quick. So this isn't even something I've thought that well through, but just off the top of my head, she's integral to K Deckard Wallace and the replicant revolution. Um, You know, the revolutionaries want her because she's the key to independence and reproduction and they can start anew with her and could, I mean, ostensibly breed her like a queen bee or something, maybe, or, you know, and and try and get their own sort of destiny and, and their own thing separate from Wallace. Wallace, of course, like Patrick said, has a capitalistic um, personal interest, financial interest, um, but she could be the key to expanding replicant production and, like he says, you know, conquering more worlds, etc. For Deckard she's everything in that he has nothing like she's the only thing that's left in his world that is representative of Rachel that represents love and family and something starkly different from the isolated lonely life that he's been living for the last 30 years and then for Kay different than Deckard but some similar points she's like the emotional center of Kay's quest to find himself to find meaning and to find his humanity. So yeah, she's like, she's a understated, extremely important character. The more like we talk about it, the more I think about her. And she's also responsible for Kay in some ways. Like 
he is on that path because she planted those memories in him or his line or whatever. Right. They share I, something intimate. Yeah, they it, they do. And I remember more, more so um, than her I, and Deckard do, right? Like Deckard yeah. doesn't have any memories with her because he left. Yeah. And I remember uh, after the first scene with her and he's she's reading the memories, I didn't even notice that she was crying the first time I saw it. And then I saw it, of course, again. I'm like, oh, wow, she's crying. There's just obviously so much going on in the film. And there's also this big question. Is she looking for her parents? Does she even know what happens to them? Clearly, she's looking for them because she's planting memories and replicants. Is she hoping that they are going to? And maybe she plants them in Blade Runner units because she knows they're going to probably eventually find something which might lead her back to her parents. Like that's also the, the Stellene is, you know, she's contracted for Wallace. She won't sell out to him. He wants to buy her out or whatever. She won't do it probably because she knows she needs to stay in place. But I, I almost feel like she has her own agenda. Um, I don't know. We don't know if she's going to go along with Fraser and the, the, the insurgents or the whatever you want to call them, the revolutionary replicants. Um, but she is planting memories in replicants for a reason. And um, Kay was the discovery or was the that that endpoint for her or that. That next step for her, like, OK, wow, here he is. And he's, he's trying to figure out what is this memory. And she realizes this is my memory. Of course, she doesn't say that. But she just affirms to him that, yes, this memory is real. So I don't really know. You don't really know where Stellene's loyalty lies. Aside from the fact that, in my op opinion, she's looking for who made her. Much like Kay, she's looking for her beginning. She's looking for parents. Kay thought he was he was the one that was born. He was the one that was hidden. He was the one that was at that at Moracle when in fact it was her. And she has memories of that, but she doesn't know who gave birth to her. She might have been born of a replicant, but for all intents and purposes, she's just like Kay. She was brought into the world. She was raised, yes, but she had no consciousness of a birth, of a, of a mother, of a father. So she shares that with other replicants. Except, I mean, of course, the big difference is she grew up. She has those memories of growing up. She's much like you and me where she, you know, uh, she has those memories of childhood or whatever. I don't even know. I, I, I almost feel like birthdays were a big deal for her because she probably never celebrated them. Her birthdays were fabricated. So to, to actually make memories when you're celebrating a birthday for her is probably like, I've never been able to do this and I can do this over and over and just throw myself into something that makes you human, you know? And also from her very stunted growth, the only place she's seen children is the orphanage. So recreating a scene of happiness with children is probably something that she thought about a lot. Cause you can, you can imagine that in that, in that orphanage, they weren't having birthday parties for those orphans, you know? She has more in common with Kay than we think, though. I think she has a different persona and a different countenance to her and a different energy, but she's also looking for meaning, which I think everyone is in this movie. They're all looking for whether that meaning means something real, like Joshi said, but that's what meaning is. It's something real, you know? Um, uh, but I wanted to go back really quick to just your supposition. I feel like maybe what Celine was working on in the beginning with the beetle wasn't maybe 
it could not have been a memory. Maybe it was just something for scientists or something for another another contract that she has. Maybe it wasn't memory, but sometimes memories mm. are specific. Sometimes memories are detailed. I remember pain, like I remember painful details from my from my dreams. Like, and I know we're talking about dreams and memory, but you should see all of my dreams that I've written down, and I can recall some of them to you like that. What happened? I was in an alley. What my hand was doing in that dream, who I was looking at, where I was flying, lights and trees. I can recall that to you in an instant. I think memories can be that way too. We can really remember, even though it might be different for everyone. But I also think that what you were saying earlier, Patrick, about like, you know, even though you and I, all three of us have enjoyed experience the same space we're going to have different memories of it we're not having different memories of it because our brains are remembering it differently there's probably that in there but we're also having different recollections of it because we're different people and we're going to see things differently that's just how life is but i think that to the point of the details i think details are important i think for instance the bar that we were all in uh in, in 2019 when we all first met up to go look at the space I remember how intricate and how wooden all the all the uh, architecture of that bar was. The chair it looked like this old bar from the from the um, the 1920s or something or earlier. It looked like maybe even like late 1900s. Here's a question. What are you gonna say? Okay. What hand was the bartender's glove on? Well, I won't remember that. In my imagine, in my recollection of it, it was his left hand. Remember, he had a sequined glove on his left hand. Hmm. The bartender in that bar we were in at? In that bar, yeah, which is sitting Ooh. by, I have the picture of it right behind me over there on the wall. You can't see because I'm standing up. Um, but the bartender had a glove on his left hand and, and we, we asked him about it. But this is what's so fascinating about memory is hmm. that because of exactly what you're saying, Jamie, because we're different people observing to some degree the same thing, our experience of it is different. And that, I think is the key to a lot of like really important things. That subjectivity mm -hmm. of memory, right? The fact that that's kind of what makes us human in the first place is that we don't have just, you know, film cameras running in our heads all the time, doing something objective and, you know, perfect and infallible. The fallibility of our memory is actually where the human inside of us lies. And that's why somebody like Staline, a memory engineer is so important to replicants is because she gives them a sense of empathy and she gives them a sense of their own life right and these little messages in a bottle like you're mentioning that she's sending out these memories of the orphanage these things that she's not being asked to do because like she's she's you know she's there to give people warm memories of birthday parties that they might have had as children right like there's a reason why that scene feels generic other than the fact that she just likes doing it and, and it's bringing her back to this imagined past that she probably like you both said didn't actually have it's supposed to be generic because you know a replicant shouldn't see that and be like wait a minute that's not me right it should be all different races and genders and things. Cause like they should, they should go, Oh yeah, there I am. Like, Oh, that's, that's me. Right. Um, and the only way, the only reason we see it as generic is because we've had very specific birthday parties for right. them. For Staline, that's not generic. That exactly. is a specific memory. Right. Um, and that's or the point, a conjured, right? it's like a conjured, like, man, if I would have a birthday party, it would look like this and yeah. all these pretty girls and all, you know, all these great kids and, you know, yeah, and so anybody can look at that and think, oh, that must have been my birthday, or oh, that must have been my memory, right? It's it's deliberately open-ended because it's performing a service, right? It's giving the sense of a life that's been lived, which, of course, is what she's doing for herself this entire time, too, because she's been in isolation for so long that she has to create this sense of her own subjective past 
to feel like she's not just this floating head in, in a concrete egg somewhere, right? But um, I, I, so I want to talk about the subjectivity memory. I also want to go back to what you're saying about the bug, Jamie. And, you know, I, I think there's many ways to interpret it. But one of which is that, like, there are no bugs in 2049, right? Like, there is no jungle with bugs flying around in it, at least that we see or that we are, are led to believe exists. And she and, wouldn't have had a memory like that. Yeah, she was. Yeah, she was not out there seeing that. Right. At least at least we don't think so. I mean, we don't know her past very well, but it seems to me like that's something she was probably hired on contract to do for an entomologist or a biologist or something to be able to show like, you know, from some, you know, uh, specimen measurements that they might have had of this like long extinct species, you know, what it might have been like for some sort of a life recreation for a museum or something somewhere. Right. So it's kind of like another way of of doing that. But it's important that we're seeing her. The first thing we see her doing is creating an insect, I think. Because it's showing us that she's an impossibility and that she's capable of doing impossible things. And what you're both saying has resonated with me a lot because she is at the center of that Venn diagram, even if we don't know it until the movie's almost done. And because of that, she in some ways is the most important character in all of Blade Runner so far because she is like the actual nexus this whole time, right? There's all these nexus models that are being manufactured. And as we said, a nexus is a bridge between things, right? She is like the bridge. She she is the she is for replicants a sign of, you know, essentially a, almost like an immaculate conception style thing, right? Like she's something, she is so important to them that she's the sort of thing that religions are founded upon, right? She is a, she is a miracle to them. Um, and for the humans who are manufacturing replicants, she's also a miracle because she was the one who worked, right? She represents what Tyrell, you know, died in pursuit of and what Wallace has been murdering all these replicants in his building to try to get at right she represents the fertile plain she represents the wall between the worlds crashing down she represents the sepulveda wall and the flood water going over it and the future that that represents right um and she is like so incredibly pivotal for so many reasons and i love how in spite of that she's played so quietly like i think carla jury does such a great job of just sort of being unassuming but giving the sense that there's a lot more there than we see right like we're kind of caught off guard by like you were saying jamie how peaceful she is how placid she is um but she's not simple you know like she's she's full of she's the, that's why i was saying almost like there's this buddhist element to her like you know she has if, emotional if you, intelligence and wisdom yeah, yeah. Uh, so so a, a pretty pivotal summer in my life was spent in Kathmandu, nepal uh, it was actually the summer before i met micah and uh we were living at right next to a, a monastery and I spent a lot of time there with the monks, just like hanging out and talking and, you know, learning about their religion and their philosophy and getting, you know, walking around the city. And, uh, and I was struck by this like constant sense of inner peace that they all had, you know, even though like they, they might get annoyed or they would laugh or, you know, whatever, like it wasn't like they were always just sort of monotone, but there was a deep sense of comfort and unhurriedness about them. But, beneath that a real sense of complexity of like emotional complexity of intellectual complexity there were people who were at a place where they were in control of that but they weren't like automatons right and i really get that sense by the way carla jury plays staline i feel like she comes across as being apart right and yet deeply connected as being simple on the surface and yet basically like the breakers between simplicity and, and the complex depths beneath her. Um, yeah. So I think she does a great job with it. And, uh, and I think that that bug scene could be looked at a number of different ways, but like everything else in 2049, no matter how you look at it, it creates an interesting narrative thread to go down and try to tease out, you know? 
They say you're the best memory maker there is. Well, then they're kind. I love birthday parties. You work for Wallace? Subcontract. I'm one of his suppliers. He offered to buy me out, but I take my freedom where I can find it. Why are you so good? What makes your memory so authentic? Well, there's a bit of every artist in their work. But I was locked in a sterile chamber at eight, so... If I wanted to see the world, I had to imagine it. Got very good at imagining. Wallace needs my talent to maintain a stable product. I think it's only kind. Replicants live such hard lives, made to do what we'd rather not. I can't help your future, but I can give you good memories to think back on and smile. This is a smaller point, but when you guys are talking about what she potentially could have been doing and making sense of this work she's doing with the Beatle, it just dawned on me that uh, one possibility, I, I don't think for this film, but just in a theoretical possibility would be that um, think about um, like older people with older people with dementia or Alzheimer's or memory loss or people who get in accidents and have memory loss. If there was a record like a more, visual more specific record of some important experiences of your life that you had somewhere saved on a chip or on video or audio whatever she could actually be hired by people to re-implant previous memories that they've now lost and she would create those visually and then there would be a way obviously to implant it into the brain which for all we know in the Blade Runner world these memories are implanted at at creation of replicants. We haven't heard of them being um, crossed over into adult humans, but just throwing it out there as a sci-fi thing, that would be a cool use of that technology if it was, if it was possible. One thing uh, I, I, I noticed is I sort of do a, a, a virtual, as I kind of scroll through the characters in the Blade Runner universe, also in the first film, but certainly 2049. Staline stands out to me for a very specific reason. Of course, we talked about the differences in her her energy, her Zen-like Buddha, you know, her, just everything, her presence. But there's also something else about her that's, if you think about, even like Joy, you think about all of these characters and you meet them, and there's something about Kay that we become emotionally attached to because Kay is trying to find out, who am I? Where's my part in this story? Um, and for a while, we think it's a very specific part, but it isn't. But there's something about all of the characters, except for Staline, that's missing from them. Everyone seems affected. Or disaffected. Um, everyone seems cold. There, certainly, when we meet Deckard again, there's this, this whatever this isolation has permeated his subconscious to his conscious, where he's he's so isolated that he's pushing everything away. He doesn't want Kay there for most of the time until the very end. And then they decide that they can get along. But everyone is just standoffish and empty. There's just, everyone seems like a vessel, an empty vessel. And they're just, there's a difference. And that difference in character, I would say probably it's even different than in uh, the 2019 film where there's, there is a sense of warmth. Like when they go in the bar, there's a sense of warmth to people a little bit. Even when Deckard is um, looking at the scale and the woman who's helping him read the 
figure out what that scale is. There's a warmth about her. There's a calm about her. There's a humanity about her. And in 2049, I don't sense that humanity really in anyone except for Staline. She has this aura that she is like a soft, well-rounded. Yeah, yeah, but she's like she's she is human. She is fully human. That's it. she's fully empathetic. We keep coming across people who lack empathy. She is fully empathetic, and she that's I think that's why she stands apart in uh, that last moment where you see Deckard walking to the window or to the glass, and she approaches him, and she's she's got this smile on her face. This, this empathy, this warmth about her. Um, and that's also that Venn diagram. She's also in the middle because she is fully human. She is what everyone wants to be, human, born of a woman. There's just something about her that when I, whenever we see her, whenever we engage her, she's the most human. And certainly the only other character in that film, what I could say that would be a little bit like her, would be Sapper. Sapper has, there's something about his energy that's very peaceful. But there's also something missing about him too. Like he's... He even he's on that farm because he's on he's essentially on the run, but he's living remotely, so no in one hiding. would find him. Yeah, in hiding. Staline is that beautiful that beautiful end of the road that everyone's on, that everyone wants to be. Even though still she has her own demons, she has her own, you know, desires for who am I and where do I belong and who are my parents. There's something about her that's arrived that no one else has arrived to. I get that same energy from from Joy too. I have to say, do you? Forty nine. Yeah, I don't. Oh boy. Fuck joy. I'm kidding. <laughs> Here we go. It's another episode. You know, I hadn't really considered it until you were saying it, but you're right. I feel like in, in 2019, a lot of characters seem sort of happy to be there, right? Like we see, you know, Taffy Lewis, for example, like mm-hmm. he's in his element. He like loves that shit, right? There's people dancing and partying and going out and spending money at bars. There's pay phones people are using. People are, you know, not pay phones, but you know what I mean? People are, are communicating and they're out and about and they're in the streets and they're, you know, it's a mess and it's in some ways post-apocalyptic, but it's, it's post-apocalyptic in the way that a party that's gone on too long feels post-apocalyptic, right? Where it's like, everybody's got to go home, but there's not really a home to go back to. But like, you know, there's a festive almost atmosphere to it. It's oppressive, but it's festive at the same time. And in 2049, like nobody wants to be there. Nobody's happy, right? Everybody's alone. Everybody's in their own vessels for the most part. We see Joshi, you know, sitting up there in her ivory office, with the rain pelting her window, looking miserable with space heaters running. You know, everybody that we see, that nobody has passion in it, right? With Deckard, who, you know, is is very much an emotional heart of both films for a lot of people, is a shell of himself in 2049, right? Even, uh, he was in 2019 too, right? But like, we get this, this sense of loss in 2049, this sense of like, just really despairing loss. Um, and of course, Kay finds a purpose, as largely as a result of Staline, but um, in general, it's a it's a listless environment where people are kind of just waiting out whatever time they have left. And that's the kind of environment, Dan, where I think you were onto something, where people would want escapism. They want a Godzilla vs. Kong is what I'm trying to get back around to. They want, <laughs> they, they want to have memories of something different, right? So sure, like we're introduced to Staline as a memory engineer for replicants, but but I can 100% would not be surprised surprised. She was also, in some ways, a memory implanter for humans because she's giving them those birthday parties that they remembered seeing on television when they were kids, or she's giving them a jungle to walk around and look at insects in, right? She's able to create other worlds. 
But I think something else that I want to get back to for a moment about her and memory and subjectivity is that, um, like I mentioned, Hampton Fancher has said in, in many occasions that empathy is at the heart of what he's trying to do with Blade Runner, right? I think that was very much at the heart of what Philip K. Dick was doing as well. And I think Michael Green is into that too. And we can see that from the comics as well as the screenplays. And I think that uh, in a lot of ways, because Staline is the empathy vessel for the film, because she's the one manufacturing pasts for people, she's the one giving them subjective selves to inhabit, to see the world their own way. She's the one giving them backstories so that they're not just sort of, you know, products rolling off of an assembly line. They have some sort of inner life. She has that extra layer of humanity, and it's not ironic, but it's interesting because she is also, you know, at least of parentage, a, a synthetic creation in some ways, right? Like she wouldn't be here if it weren't for a manufactured, at least one manufactured replicant model. Um, and yet through that process, she has unlocked some very deep humanity that, Jamie, you're right, is completely missing everywhere else in that film. And indeed, without Staline, this would be a really, although for me, of course, Joy fills a little bit of that gap too, but I think in general, like, Staline provides the heart that that film needs to cohere together, right? Like, we were making pasta the other night, I was sending you guys a picture of this, right? And and we were playing with how many eggs to put in it, because, like, it wasn't quite cohering properly, and we kept going back and forth, and it's like, oh, shit, it's not quite coming out right. And it's a balancing act with a film, too, just like that, right? Like, you have to decide... What is the binding element behind this thing? What's the one thing that you're going to tweak a little bit to make it cohere? And for me, Staline is that element for the film, but also for the universe these characters inhabit, because she is the connective agent, right? She is the one feeding that empathy back into the world. She's the one giving everybody a past. And in giving them a past, whether it's real or it's not real, she's giving them a perspective. And when you have a perspective, you have agency to a degree, right? And I think that, like, it's important that I was the only one that remembered the glove because there might not have even been a glove, right? <laughs> that guy at the bar that we're talking about. Who knows? In my head, there was. But the reason, the reality is, is that like, I saw that scene a certain way. And because I saw it a certain way, I know that I'm a human. Like, I know that that was my recreation of that scene that I played back in my head of this wonderful night with my buddies, right? That's an important thing. That fallibility of memory is an important thing. And the reality or unreality of memory in Blade Runner, I think, is something that is tremendously important. You know, uh, I'll pose this question to you guys. We're talking about empathy. What do you think, and I have my answer, but I want to hear from you. What What do you think drives empathy? In general? In general. And I, this is going to get at something that I feel like Damn. is... That's a, I might need a second. That's a pretty deep question. Well, so, so to me, you know, sympathy is being able to envision how somebody would feel, you know, from your perspective, right? But empathy is being able to appreciate that you don't have the perspective somebody else has and that you need to understand their perspective on their terms, not on your terms as the person getting it. Right? You can experience life in their way, in their eyes a little bit. That's how I see empathy. Yeah, but exactly. what's driving it, though? What What do you think is driving empathy? What do you, What gives you the ability to be empathetic? I would say all both all three of us are highly empathetic people. But what drives that for us? And if if I'm not gonna like string this out for very long, I I'll, I'll present my theory. I mean, I think on a base level, 
this is just part of it. I'm not saying this is like my entire theory of empathy, but part of it is kind of related to karma. It's like, if I can kill a fish real quick before I'm going to cook it, I'm going to choose to do that. Because if I can end its suffering sooner, I know that's better for the fish. Now, I don't understand how a fish's nervous system works. I don't know how much pain it's feeling. I don't know how different from me it is. But I like to imagine that if the roles were reversed and I were a fish, that the human handling me would handle me with some empathy. And so I think you can extrapolate that to other people, to dogs, to anything. Um, and it's, it's not about being selfish meaning well but if it was me i wouldn't want to be in pain so it's it's deeper than that but i think the initial instinct is that and you you can see it sometimes in animals but you definitely see it in humans that you understand pain emotional physical you can relate to it because you felt it and you know that it's wrong to inflict that to a certain extent unless it's necessary and so if you can alleviate the emotional or physical suffering of someone else, you want to do that. I, I think that's a huge, for me, that's a huge route to empathy um, in, in simplistic terms. It's obviously mm -hmm. a much deeper, there's a deeper answer there, but that would be my like short answer. Yeah, yeah. Well, my supposition is that I think what drives empathy, a big component of it is love. The ability to love people in a, in a way that we love humanity um, where there's no payoff for us because we're here to love each other, right? We're here to walk each other home, right? And that to me is a, a large arm of what empathy and the ability to embody empathy is, is that you can see someone fall across the street and some people might look, oh yeah, and then they keep walking. A lot of people would. And then some people will run over. Are you okay? Are you okay? I don't think a lot of people are very empathetic. I think sympathetic, yes. Empathetic, no. For me, empathy is... A lot of times I don't watch things that are really heavy. Like, for instance, The Handmaid's Tale. It's too much. I'll experience those things with her. I can't do it. It's too much for me. Even though I really want to watch a show. And I want to bring this back to Celine because... There's a character in the film named Love, who is the antithesis of love. She is not love at all, um, even though she's called love. Where I really feel like Staline, her drive is her love for human. She she's a, she has a kinship to these replicants. She's one of them in many ways. So it is important to her to endow her brothers and sisters. And whoever else, maybe there's gender unspecific versions of replicants, I don't know. But as she knows that what she does, what she's doing, even Kay asks her, why are you the best at what you do? She's the best at what she does because she's one of them. And she knows how important this is for them. She knows what not having these memories will do. Um, and that's why she's so good at it. That's why, you know, the best leaders for movements are people who are uh, who have experienced the movement. In some ways, whether it's the civil rights movement or whatever, that's why Martin Luther King was the best leader, because he's experienced what it was to be discriminated against. Staline is the best at what she does because she is a replicant um, for all intents and purposes or a half breed or whatever you want to call her. But I really think what motivates her 
um, and what we're seeing at the heart of her more than empathy, more than her energy is love. That's what we're seeing. That's what you see in her eyes when she sees Kay. She doesn't even know him, but she looks at him like she's known him all her life. She looks at him like you're a brother. She knows him. She's probably seen his model before, you know. She's probably been through the Wallace place. She's seen, you know, if you're going to be contracted for a job, you're going to be taken through each step of that. She knows. She, she's probably seen how replicants are made. Well, so it is... We, I mean, I get what you're saying, person, but she probably well, was shown sick, footage though. of it or something. Yeah, right? she'd be shown footage. That's true. She can't okay. be walking yeah. through walls. That's true. But, That's but true I get true. what you're yeah, saying. I mean, yeah, they sure. have display monitors that could just. You know, or she could have also. I mean, there are things as like masks and suits. Who knows? Who you know? I'm sure she's been beyond those walls. What really dawned on me during this whole discussion was that why she is so wonderful a character to me in, in her small role is that she. She is what everyone's looking for, not just humanity, but love, a love embodied by empathy, which is why she is crying when she sees what those memories are doing to Kay. Not because I, I feel like not she's crying because they're her memories. She knows what that memory is. She wouldn't cry over that memory. She sees it tearing her brother for all intents and purposes. It's fairly powerful. Totally. And I think love, and I, I don't mean to keep pulling us back to Buddhism, but we're all kind of doing it tonight. Um, you know, I, I read a lot of, of Thich Nhat Hanh. I, I just love yes. you know, the Buddhist monk. I adore him. And, uh, and it, something that he talks about a lot is that love, the love that you have for people is reflected in the, in the love that you have for every single element of life, for every single thing that you do throughout the day. And some of his best meditations are about washing dishes or putting things away at the end of the day or waking up and just trimming grass hedges or something like the idea is that that love suffuses everything, right? If you see the love in each other and you see the love in this life that we have and how precious it is, that that love extends to every single thing that you do. And when we see Staline creating memories, that love is there so clearly, right? Mm-hmm. When she's creating that birthday party that she's probably made a million times before, she's in, she's in love, right? She's she's showing it's it's important to her and she's present for it, right? When she's twirling the knobs on her device, she does it with gentle precision, right? She, it's something that she loves. It's something that she has reverence for. And it's all, you know, they're kind of minor points, but they're important in the scheme of things because, for one thing, it's how you build a character, right? Like, these were definitely notes that they went through when they were putting this together. You know, I'm sure that Denis or, or Gassner or whoever else was working, you know, with her had a conversation with Carla Jury about this on set and how she was going to interact with these devices and, you know, between the three of them or four of them or however many people were talking, they came up with this idea that she was full of this sort of inner peace, right? There's a reason for it. Uh, and I think the reason from a character standpoint is exactly what Jamie's saying, which is that she represents that love. That she's not in a hurry to get anywhere because although she can't, like although she's stuck in this thing, she's not stuck at all. Like this is a place that she has through immense power, I think, of will and of intellect and of creativity she has gotten to this point where like the entire universe is contained within this tiny little egg, which again is very Buddhist, right? Is, is that like you can, you can spend your life in one cubic, you know, meter of a lawn and you can see a universe in every single blade of grass. Right. And we see that with Staline. We see her, I mean, her name Staline, she's of the stars, right? She's creating a universe in this little tiny concrete place. Um, I want to quickly go back to the empathy question for a sec- for a second, because Hampton Fancher has a quote in The Art and Soul of Blade Runner about it. Um, And I want to read what what he says, just so we get that in there too. He says, When we really know what it's like to feel like somebody else, we won't want to do bad things to them. Empathy is a leading quest in our destiny. 
because that'll determine our success, right? So he's looking at it kind of in a utilitarian manner, although not quite. But it's true, and it's kind of merging both of what you guys were saying, which is that at the end of the day, empathy is the act of 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 allowing someone else's perspective to be valid to you, right? Empathy is the act of recognizing somebody else for who they are, not who you want them to be or who you assume them to be vis-a-vis yourself. It's saying you are yourself and your perspective is valid, right? Uh, at the end of the day, that, that, that's like the way to be empathetic, I think. And so sure, it means that we'll treat each other better and sure, it means that there will be fewer wars but it also means that we will live a fuller life because we will be surrounded by people who are real to us, right? Not just these nameless prototypes of ourselves that we're just walking past for the rest of our lives, you know? And it's hard. Like, being empath- being actively empathetic is a painful experience for a lot of people. Um, and, and I think many of us tune it out sometimes, right? Uh, because it can, be, it can be a lot. But it also is like, you know, living an empathetic life is being as present as you can possibly be. And... I swear to God, I'm not going to talk about Buddhism anymore in this episode, but the Dalai Lama has a, this idea that he and Desmond Tutu wrote a book together, which is just wonderful, called The Book of Joy. Not with a I, with a Y. <laughs> and he says, uh, although that would be pretty fucking, I would read that book. You know, they say that the people who are happiest are also the people who cry the most, right? And that the line between laughter and tears is so is so paper thin because you can't do either of those things if you're not present, right? You can't cry openly and you can't laugh openly if you're not if you're anywhere else but in the moment that you're living. And I really feel like we see that with her, right? And we see it when she's, of course, you know, hearing from Kay the memory and she's crying then. We see her kind of lapse into that. And we also see it in that incredible sense of peace that she has. And we see it in in her eyes as she greets Deckard at the end of the film, which is something that, I mean, that scene, I mean, talk about things that we've forgotten about the more we've seen the movie. Like, that ending to me shook me the first time I saw the film because it was just like, you know, so my favorite book of all time is Infinite Jest, as you both know. The ending to Infinite Jest, the first time I read it, I was in Italy, actually, and I was reading it on an ebook because the book is so long, it, you know, that was the only way it would fit in my, uh, in my carry-on. And so I didn't know how much of the book was left. I was just enraptured, you know, reading it. And I get to the end of the book and I knew it was the last page, even though I didn't see what page it was on, because it felt, you know, after 1400 pages, I felt like, oh my God, this is it. This is it. This is it. Even though it ends almost in the middle of a sentence, it ends very suddenly. There's that same sense at the end of 2049 of, oh shit, this was it right before the end. Right. And it's that same, that same sense that Kay probably had as he died on the steps outside, right? Where he came home and then he realized that he had come home and he realized that that was it. And then it closed, right? The film does that to us, too, as viewers. Like, we do not want to leave at that point. We have made it. We are ready to get this, you know, incredible resolution with this father and daughter. We're ready for the future. We waited 35 years for this fucking movie to come out, and we are <laughs> we are, we are not ready to leave the movie theater yet. And then right at the end, it just closes in on, on itself, almost like an aperture of a camera. Like, this is too powerful for you to see. This is This is something holy that you don't deserve to see. This is not your story anymore. This is the story of these characters. And that when they put their hands up to the glass, like that is just a moment that, man, that is Hollywood magic, right? The way the tempo of that moment, the finality of it, and also the beautiful ambiguity that it closes on because Deckard knows exactly what he's looking at, right? Deckard is shaking. And Staline, her eyes are, it's almost like the Mona Lisa, right? She could be saying one of a million things in that final frame. And depending on who we are and how empathetic we are and how we're putting ourselves in her shoes, we, we, we come away with our own 
ideas, not only about the ending of the film, but about everything else about this character, right? Like we come away with the sense of like, oh, her, she's not actually sick, or maybe she is really sick, or her parents weren't real, or maybe her par her adoptive parents were real, or maybe she, you know, maybe she did have a twin brother and that was not actually a fabrication, you know, like we come away with this wonderful sense of what if, like any great work of art leaves us with, and it ends with this ellipsis and that ellipsis lives on in our hearts. And that's why we're doing so many episodes about this movie. Right. And that's why these characters could easily, each of them have multiple episodes dedicated to them because they live half in our own hearts, right? And and that's what a great empathetic work of art will do for us. Yeah, the ending is quite the opposite of not to shit on MCU and superhero movies, but the trend in those has been to have like five endings and then a and then a post ending and you know what I mean where it's like is it over? Oh, it's not over and then oh, it's not the ending. Whereas this is like yeah, you you wanted more. You were left wanting, I think quite purpose purposely. Um yeah, man, Patrick, you're always such a hard act to follow. Um, but I did think of something else about empathy that may or may not fit here, but I'll use it as my closing thought that um, I don't know. I haven't read any of the um, if there's been any like anthropological or evolutionary studies on empathy in humans. Um, if you could argue that humans are the most empathetic species, again, we do see it in other species, but it's not as common as in humans. Um, I think there would be a pretty strong argument to make that to live and thrive as a society, empathy is also something that we have developed evolutionarily as humans so that we can get along better. And obviously, yeah, wars have been around and all those negative things have been around. But in terms of being altruistic and doing things for someone, even though you might not get some benefit out of it directly, but because it benefits society, volunteerism and all those things um, are a relatively uniquely human trait. And so in the context of this story, I think that's another thing that makes Staline much more human when we're talking about replicant versus human. And of course we've talked a lot about um, Deckard versus Roy and how empathy works with them. And is it enough? If you have empathy, does that make you a human or is it not enough if you weren't born of a woman? But I think there's something uniquely human about empathy, at least on a societal level like that. So I think that's another point in um, Staline's basket in terms of her humanity. The last point that I would make uh, before we close would be what you were just discussing, Patrick, in terms of that last moment, that ellipse or ellipsis of, of Deckard walking into that room, the, it's like a little foyer or a holding room or whatever, because you can't be in the same room as Deline. And he puts his hand up on the glass and you don't really know. You don't know what she's thinking. You don't know who she, she doesn't know who this man is. Um, but maybe she does, but maybe she doesn't. I don't know. You don't really know. You don't know anything. Um, but what's beautiful about that moment is that it's a beginning. And right, it was right after we saw an ending. So we saw Kay give up his life and pass away on the steps of, the, of that structure, of that building. And then you saw a new life begin. Um, that was just really beautiful. It was this, this wonderful fragile delicate dichotomy happening there um, and life is always like that there's always new life when something passes away there's always a, a give and a take and that ending is so amazing because it, that is what life is it is a give and is a take Kay gave his life and um, 
then we were given a new life with with Kay and Celine, whatever that might be, wherever that they might go, I don't know. Um, but just perfect. Yeah, I, 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 I'll close with a, a similar thought, which is just that um, there are stories that we're not going to see, you know? Like, there are, there are things that will happen when we're gone. And we still treat each other like that's not the case to a degree, right? Like, when we have those moments of empathy, it feels like... Um, I don't know. It's, it's easy to forget that sometimes, right? It's it's like, in a way, you know, it would be easy to go through life just acting in self-interest all the time because you can't take it with you and eventually it's over and like, you know, whatever, right? There are some people who live their lives like that and they're fucking terrible people, but like, it's a, it's a, it's one way to do it, right? But for those of us who don't do that, we do all of these things knowing that there is no balance sheet at the end that we're going to be able to cash out. You know, we're not going to be able to get paid for unused sick time or something when we're dead, right? Like, we, we leave. And who knows what happens at that point. But the important thing, though, is that in those moments when we're here, there are stories that we're present for, right? And those stories are the point. Like, those stories are the point. And then we leave and we say goodbye and those stories continue and that empathetic chain continues into the future and, and, and we're not here for it. And that's okay because we were part of that, right? The civilizations, Dan, you're mentioning, you know, that might have been less empathetic, who, who knows, in the past. Like, they all had their stories and they left and those stories continued and we're here as a continuation of those stories too and they didn't know that when they were acting that way and they had no way to see what was going to happen and there are things that will happen way in the future that we'll have no idea about and, and it's, and, and this is like, you know, high school, late night sleepover conversation. But at the same time, it's not because it's important to think about. Like there's a quote that I bring up on the show a lot of the time, which I I realize is probably getting old at this point, but it's from Bioshock, which is my favorite video game. And the quote is that um, love is a chemical and we give it meaning by choice. And that's that's something that I think about a lot because I think it's sort of important to, to, for me at least, to keep that in mind, how important it is to continually honor that and to, and to, and to, to honor the, the incredible, importance that living a life for for and of love is that it's something that you have to be present for you know um you can't just be lustful and you can't just you know go through life doing whatever you want to do you have to cultivate love you have to build it right and empathy is of course the key to that and the reason i'm saying that is because when i'm sitting there with with our dog who might have been bred to be more empathetic might not be empathetic. Maybe she just wants biscuits or something. Who knows? <laughs> but when I'm sitting there with her, and, you know, usually we're the only two awake at the end of the night because we're both sort of night owls, right? And so I'll be sitting, you know, with, you know, Michael will be passed out next to me or something, and Luna will come up, and and I'll have that moment of connection with her, and I'll put my hand in her head, and she'll look at me, and, like, I know she is inside my heart at that moment, you know? And I know, and I know that, like, she's inside mine, too. We're having a connection, and I don't know what that's all about, but that connection is, like, that wonderful, ineffable, impossible to express thing at the heart of every human experience is meaningful, right? And I think like it's, I could very easily have those moments and miss them, right? I could very easily just pet the dog and go to bed, right? But that empathetic act of that sometimes is kind of painful, right? Because, because I know that she's probably going to die before we do, you know, she's a dog. She's going to live a, a shorter life. Like it sucks, right? In a way. And I'm present for that in that moment. And I'm looking at her and I'm like, I'm really glad our lives intersected, you know? And that to me is like, that's again, the point. And that's what Staline represents to me is those intersections, right? She is a binding agent that brings together all of these different replicants. And some, sometimes it's in the form of messages and bottles, right? Sometimes it's 
you know, she's sending out clues and breadcrumbs. But most of her time is spent engineering birthday parties and is spent engineering memories. And there's something beautiful about that because it's a it's a it's a chance to to bring everyone together. And I, and I think that like her being so present physically and mentally and emotionally in the little bit of time that we get with her really sells that to me. And I think that uh, I think she's a, an amazing character. And, and I really think last thing I'll say is, you know, there's a musical theme that runs through the entire film that we first hear, um, you know, towards the very beginning. It's like the, the main 2049 theme. And Wallfish has talked about that theme before, and he says, you know, it represents Kay's journey, right? It's those four notes, I believe, that sort of outline this harmonic progression. And it's like kind of a winding motif. And we hear it a lot. And first, you know, the first time we hear it, it's kind of spectral. And then throughout the movie, it becomes louder and louder and louder. Um, but it wasn't Kay's journey, though. That was actually Staline's theme the whole time, because it was representing what he was searching for. And he, the whole time, he was searching for her without even realizing it until very late in the film. And that represents like, Celine is that for so many things, right? When we find out what her significance is and we find out how miraculous it is that she's here in the first place, let alone as such an amazing person, the whole movie clicks into place, right? Like our journey pivots as a result of her being a part of it. And then you can never watch the movie the same way again after that, right? So yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we finally took the time to, to really dive into her character. And I hope that, uh, I don't know, I hope that, People, when you watch the movie again, you you recognize the significance, if you haven't already, of the fact that we are not privy to what happens when the credits roll, because that, I think, is sort of the key to this whole thing, right? Is that, like, this is their story now. We're gone. Let it continue. We don't have to know everything. It's theirs. They have their own perspective. And because we are empathetic viewers of this film, we can respect that, you know? There's something beautiful about that, I think. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap this discussion. Thank everyone for listening. Uh, before we leave, I just want to uh, talk about Patreon. You can support us once a month through Patreon, and that starts at $4 a month. We have several different tiers. If you support us, if you choose to do that, we have uh, a show called Framerate, and we review all sorts of movies. We have over 40 films at this point, I believe. Um, you also have access to something called Shit Show, which there's a couple episodes of, which is usually for Perfect Organism, but you can listen to those as well. There'll be new episodes of that. It's just a great way to support us, the show, uh, whether that will be upcoming events, more audio dramas, or just the fees that we pay to host this show and give you the content that you get. Think about it. If you want to support us, go to bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Also, for those listening, if you can go to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast and write us a review. The more reviews we get, the more popular we become, the more, the more listeners that we have. So please do that. That would be great. Thank you so much. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.